Well, not only is today the first day of October, also just a couple days ago, the clouds finally parted and we saw the top of Pikes Peak and it now has a little cap of snow on it. It's a gorgeous time to live in Colorado. Amen. Have you ever seen a performance by a master that left you speechless? You know, maybe you went to a, a concert, maybe it was a, a virtuoso guitarist, or maybe it was this a legendary violinist or pianist, or whatever, and you're like, oh my goodness, that was a big... Or maybe it was a sporting event, and you saw one of the greats, one of the legends accomplish something, or maybe it was, uh, you know, the, the, a comeback for the ages, and you're thinking, man, this was incredible, and we got to be a witness of that... And some of you will know this, but our son Jonas is um, uh, in a so- on a soccer team, and for many years I was his coach. In fact, a couple of the kids here in our, in our congregation were part of the team, and I was able to coach because I had help from other people. ATN was, in his, was a co-coach with me for many of the years. And, uh, but Jonas, things have changed now. Jonas is on this like official uh, academy team, with the, and, and, and not only have things gotten serious, but they, they now have three practices a week and homework, which is a lot to ask at seven years old. And the soccer homework, though, is mostly watching highlight videos. So that part's kind of fun. So once in a while, we'll sit down and we'll watch these soccer highlight videos, and it's like, watch Ronaldo for five minutes, you know, or watch Messi for five minutes. And so Jonas and I were watching these videos, and I'm like, oh my goodness, how did he do that? That was incredible. How did the ball curl? And I've realized that our level of awe is proportionately related to our ability to do that thing. And so, so if you can't do that thing, you'll have a lot of awe, right? If you, if you see someone that does something that you can do, you're like, eh, sure, I can do that. But when you behold someone doing something that you can't do, all of a sudden you have awe. So I live with a lot of awe. Because I see people doing stuff all the time. They think, well, how did they do that? You know, this summer, I was watch, I was with, we were with our in-laws, and we, they, they were all um, water skiing. I can't water ski. I tried. I can't do it. I'm in awe of water skiers. I'm in awe of snowboarders. I'm actually in awe of people who can jump rope, because that's just amazing <laughs> to me. Uh, I don't even know how to do that. It's incredible. I live with a lot of awe. Romans 8 is Paul stopping for a minute to have a moment of awe. Romans 8 is Paul saying, look, I've said all of these things and I just want you to take a step back and say, behold, God has done the impossible. And Paul's awe is at an all-time high because he's just laid out how impossible these things would have been for us or for the law or for any other power in the world to accomplish them. And so God, Paul says, has done the impossible, something that no one else could do. When we started our series in Romans 1, we began with Paul saying, this is the good news. It's the announcement of who Jesus is, that he is Christ the Lord. And we talked in week one about what that means to call Jesus Christ and Lord. And then we also talked about how Paul goes very quickly into the bad news. He starts to show the human condition that sin isn't just humans misbehaving. Sin is humans beginning to destroy ourselves. And Paul does this very graphically. He says, look, we're made in the image of God. So anytime we worship an image that is not God, we destroy the image of God in us. 
And so Paul links our idolatry, our worship of something that is not God, to the very defacing and disfiguring of our lives and our bodies. And in Romans 2, he begins to spell this out. And so we come face to face with this knowledge that humans have fallen short. And in fact, the way he builds his argument, he kind of starts with, with stuff that the Gentiles would have agreed with. We've noted that the backdrop of this letter is a congregation that is a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And at, at one point in Rome, the, the Caesar kicked out all of the Jews from Rome, and so the church was just Gentiles. And then the next Caesar came to power, and they wel- he welcomed Jews back into the city. So now this church has Jews and Gentiles trying to figure out how to coexist as Christians, each one trying to claim that they're more superior than the other good thing we don't deal with those kinds of problems today, right? And so you have, you have the Jews who in particular said, look, if anyone can claim superiority, it's us because we were first. We have the riches of the Torah. And Paul says, yeah, but there's one problem. You're infected with the same disease. You're the ones who are supposed to carry the cure, and yet you yourself are infected. And then when we get to the end of Romans 3, we, we understand that no one is righteous. No, not one. And things begin to turn a little bit in Romans 4 as Paul begins to help us understand how we access the grace of God. And he starts talking about faith. And just so people don't get the idea that Paul's making up some new religion, he goes all the way back to Abraham, Abraham and he says, remember, God promised Abraham that he was going to bless the whole world through Abraham, and all Abraham had to do to be part of that promise was to have faith. And Paul says, that's not very different from our, our situation today where when we have faith in the God who raises the dead, we become uh, heirs and members of this promise. Romans 5, Paul really turns up, uh, turns up the heat. 5 through 8 is kind of a section that belongs together. And Paul starts saying things like, look, because of Jesus, we now have peace with God. We've been set right with God. We have access into this grace. In Romans 6, he starts to spell out what it means to have a new allegiance. And our bodies themselves can be offered as weapons of righteousness. That's an amazing image. And then in Romans 7, he reminds us how powerless we were under just the law or the instructions, and he spells this out. And last week, we we gave sin the name, uh, sin with a capital S. We talked about how it has this power that's trying to seize us and kill us and destroy us. And now we get to Romans 8, and Paul's at the end of his long little Uh, description here of faith and grace and the power of God. And so Romans 8 is Paul's big moment of awe. Romans 8 is where Paul wants us to step back and say, can you believe this? God has done the impossible. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 8 verse 1. We heard this read, but I want you to listen to it again. Romans 8 is so packed with goodness that we're actually going to take the chapter in two weeks. We're going to do the first half of Romans 8 today, and we're going to do the second half of Romans 8 next week. And I want to say three things to you from the first half of Romans 8. Verse 1, so now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you've been an observant reader or listener, you'll catch that Paul has already addressed all three of those things in earlier chapters, law, sin, and death. And God has done what was impossible for the law since it was weak because of selfishness. 
God condemned sin in the body by sending his own son to deal with sin in the same body as humans who are controlled by the same sin. I want you to catch something this morning. God condemned sin so that we don't have to be condemned. God condemned sin with a capital S. Sin itself, the entity that is trying to destroy every human. God condemned sin so that we don't have to be condemned. In Romans 5 verse 18, the beginning of this section, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The beginning of this section of Romans 5 through 8, Paul says, look, condemnation was headed our way, but God did something nobody saw coming. He condemned sin in the body of Christ Jesus. Now, it's so interesting how Paul words this. There's not a great metaphor for this, but some of you have dealt with the horrors of cancer. Some of you have seen loved ones fight against cancer. And you understand that sometimes cancer is such a powerful toxin to the body that the only way to destroy it is to destroy all of the cells in it. And so chemo becomes this way of of just blasting everything around it, right? Some of you know that. Some of you have walked through that. Imagine sin as the most powerful cancer in the world that there's no way to destroy it without also destroying the body that carries it. That's what sin is like. That's what sin is like. Why were we condemned? Because we collaborated and cooperated with sin itself and took it into our bodies. And and Paul says, look, God needed to condemn us because he needed to condemn the cancer of sin. And just when we thought, well, gosh, we're stuck. How do we get out of this? Paul says, God did the impossible. God condemned sin in the body of Christ Jesus. You're like, what? How'd you do that? How'd you take the cancer that was infecting the human race and put it in the body of Christ Jesus so that at the cross, what God judged was not you or me, but the very cancer of sin itself? That's amazing. God condemned sin so that we don't have to be condemned. Now, I hesitate. I'm pushing my luck here to make a Harry Potter reference two weeks in a row. (laughs) But I'm telling you, there is not a modern metaphor for this that is better than Harry Potter book seven. There isn't. Some of you are like, I don't know, pastor. I'm going to get emails. I get it. I understand. But if you've not read it, you don't know. But there is not a metaphor in modern literature that is better than this because the only way for the dark Lord to be destroyed was for the part of the dark Lord, the curse that was in Harry to be destroyed itself. And the only way for that to be destroyed was for Harry to give himself up to death. And so in a not perfectly analogous but somewhat similar way, He who knew no sin became sin so that the curse would be in Christ. And when God judged sin in the body of Jesus, he made it possible for all of us who are in Christ to no longer be condemned. That's beautiful. It's powerful. And it's hinted at in Harry Potter. Okay, verse 9. Some of you are like, still not sure? Okay. Verse 9. But if you aren't self-centered, and he's talking a little bit about our attitude toward God, instead, he says, you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, God's Spirit lives in you, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Him. And if Christ is in you, the Spirit is your life. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. Some of you have come 
from different backgrounds where you've heard pastors say things like, you can believe in Jesus and not have the Holy Spirit, that's false. That's not in the Bible. If you've said yes to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, right? You have, there's no welcoming Jesus into your heart. Guess who's filling your heart? The Holy Spirit, right? To believe in Jesus is, to, in fact, Paul in Corinthians says, you couldn't even say that Jesus is Lord if not by the Holy Spirit. Right? So if you believe in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't listen to this text and hear, oh no, was there something else I was supposed to do? No, you said yes to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, that does mean that there's more that we can experience of the Holy Spirit. And there's, the scriptures also talk about an ongoing infilling that we're supposed to welcome in our life. We've talked a lot about that. We did a whole series on that at the beginning of this year called the Holy Who, if you want to hear about that. But Romans 8 is Paul saying, if you've said yes to Jesus, you already have the Spirit of Christ. And then the good news gets better. He says, listen, if Christ is in you, the Spirit is your life. The Spirit is your life because of God's righteousness, but the body is dead because of sin. And if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also through his spirit that lives in you. Now we need to do a couple things here. Sometimes when we hear Paul use the word body or flesh, we're wondering what he's talking about. So take a moment with me and look at this. Body or flesh in Paul's writing can refer to physicality, but it can also refer to carnality, meaning our sinfulness. And it can also refer to mortality, the fact that we're going to die. And sometimes you're thinking, well, which one is it? A lot of times for Paul, he's holding all of it together. Because it is sin that led to death. And it's in the physical body of Christ Jesus that sin and death were judged. So all of this kind of belongs together. They're related concepts. But what I want you to see from this is that God gave us the spirit of resurrection life. God gave us the spirit of resurrection life. Paul says, look, you saw it happen. You understand that God raised Jesus from the dead. And then Paul says, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. It's going to raise you up one day. It's going to quicken your body one day. You have an advanced foretaste of what's coming. Now, if you've been part of New Life Downtown for a little while, you know that in certain seasons of the year, we say the Nicene Creed together, this confession of Christian faith throughout the centuries. What's the very last sentence of the creed? We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But Paul says a foretaste of that resurrection power, a down payment of that resurrection life already lives in you. Already lives in you. We have, God gave us the spirit of resurrection life. Now, I want to unpack this even more because very often what we contrast in our life is sinner and righteous. I'm a sinner, but God also says I'm righteous and I'm kind of confused and I don't know which is which. You may not realize this, but this tension that you feel and the way of expressing it in those words comes from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said this. Now, this will be fun. If you get nothing else, you'll get a little Latin phrase you can use at lunch today. Luther said, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinful, or at once a sinner 
and justified. Now I know what Luther's trying to say. But I'd like to suggest to you that this way of viewing things is the reason why we view ourselves as miserable, dirty, rotten sinners that God just tolerates. Like, well, I am a sinner, but I guess you thank God for grace. I mean, he didn't want to, but technically he's got to let me into heaven, you know. I am a miserable, dirty, rotten sinner, but God sort of did some magic trick and now calls me righteous, but I know the truth. I am really a sinner. And so this has given us a kind of Eeyore complex. I don't deserve anything. I'm lousy. I'm a miserable sinner, but God decided to somehow call me righteous. Can I say to you that nowhere in the New Testament after Christ are we called sinners. Nowhere in the New Testament is a Christian, a person who is in Christ, called a sinner. And I'm going to show you why in a moment. In fact, the specific language of Romans 8 is not the parallel between sin and righteous, righteousness or sinner and a righteous person. The specific contrast in Romans 8 is a person who was dead and resurrection life. And so I love what New Testament scholar John Barclay says. He says, maybe we should say simul mortuus et vivens, at once dead and yet alive. At once dead. I've still got this same body. It's breaking down. I'm going bald. It's going gonna, it's gonna to run out one day. I've still got this physical body that carries mortality that is the result of carnality. It's got a bent towards sin. I get it. But something else is happening too. There is a spirit of resurrection inside of me that is one day going to regenerate the whole thing. The whole thing. It's going to make the physical itself new. It's, gonna, it's such a powerful spirit of life that it's actually going to overhaul the whole thing. So we are not sinners who are also justified. We are dead people who are alive with resurrection life. Somebody say Amen. I am trying to blow your mind this morning. We are not sinners who are all so justified. God counts me as righteous, but I know who I really am. No, no, you're a, a person bound up in the body of death, carrying around this treasure in jars of clay, the spirit of who raised Christ from the dead, who will also one day give life to your mortal body. Dead and yet at once full of resurrection life. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 12, go on to the next verse. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, we do have an obligation. We are bound towards something. But it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. This is Paul saying, listen, you can, if you'd like, live on your own free will with an obligation to sin and selfishness. But guess what? It's on its way to death. You know how that story ends. But he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. Let me spell this out a bit more. Last week we said sin is not just something we do, it's a power we were under. Do you remember this? We said this last week. Sin is not just something we do. It's a power we were under. So when the New Testament calls someone a sinner, they're not talking about just someone who does bad things. They're talking about someone who was under the power of sin. Paul doesn't use the language of sinner to describe those who've been transferred from the domain of sin and its tyranny and now transferred under the lordship and power of Jesus. Paul doesn't call us sinners. You know what he calls us? Saints. 
children of God. Why? Because you're no longer under the power of sin. So let me help you make this clear. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation because you are not under the power of sin. That doesn't mean you don't sin. That doesn't mean you don't voluntarily live under that old allegiance. I imagine it's like, you know, someone who used to live in California and they grew up as a Raiders fan. They were under the power of sin and death. And then God in his mercy relocated them to Colorado. And they are now in Broncos country. Now you can choose in a weak moment to root for the Raiders. But you are no longer in the domain of Raider Nation. You are now in Broncos country, right? You can, sure, if you want to, say yes, fine. But this is what Paul wants you to see. You used to not have a chance, choice. You used to not have the choice. You had to give in to sin. And now Paul says, but now there's an option to you. The power, we are no longer under the power of sin. We can live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me say one more thing about this. Don't for a minute believe that the power of sin and the power of the Spirit are equal powers. They are not. And sometimes we imagine this, oh, the power of sin is like that red devil on my shoulder. It's just so strong. And the power of the Spirit, like, thank you, Jesus. It's like a sweet little angel over here, you know. Paul already told us which power is stronger because he calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of the one who raised Christ from the dead. Hello, sin and death lost. Jesus won. The spirit of resurrection is stronger than the power of sin. This is not a struggle for God. That doesn't mean that we don't experience the struggle. It just means we need to enter the struggle from the place of victory not the place of defeat, right? You don't enter your struggle daily with sin saying, well, sin is so strong. It's so strong. But I got the Holy Spirit, so maybe it'll be like, you know, yin and yang, kind of just fighting it out. Paul's like, are you kidding me? This is the spirit of the one who raised Christ from the dead. It's not even a contest. Now you can choose who you surrender to. You can give sin power. In fact, early in Romans, Paul uses the exact phrase. He says, you can let sin reign. You can act like it's powerful, but you don't have to. You can live by the power of the Holy Spirit. What would it look like if from the moment you wake up and throughout your day, you stopped and you paused and you took a deep breath you said, come Holy Spirit. I want to offer my body to you. What if when you're headed out on your way and you know traffic is coming and construction is coming and three lanes to one lane is coming. God bless Woodman and everyone working on it. And you, and you say, God, I know where I'm tempted to go. But would the spirit of resurrection life empower me toward patience today? Would the spirit of resurrection life empower me towards fidelity today? Would the spirit of resurrection life take lordship over my eyes and my thoughts today? What if 
What if you woke up every day and recognized that the Spirit who announced victory over sin and death is in you, available to you, yours at every moment, yours at every turn, yours a breath away. Come, Holy Spirit, help me, Lord. Redirect me, turn me, Lord. Empower me, Lord. I don't want to go down this road again. And this leads us to the third thing. Verse 14. All who are led by God's Spirit. You see how Paul keeps strengthening the language here? First he says the Spirit is in you. And then now he says, don't just be content to let it be a passive thing. That the Spirit is in you. Hallelujah. No, no, no. Let your life be led by the Spirit. Go on and follow the Holy Spirit. Go on and welcome the Holy Spirit. Go on and acknowledge His presence and call for His help. Be led. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back into fear. This is why I think this is such a tragedy that it's so many times the messages we hear from preachers and from other Christians is that God's up here using fear as His tool of manipulation. God's here saying, you better behave or else I've still got your eternity in the balance. Paul's like, are you kidding? That's not how this works. Don't be a Christian and live like you're still a slave to fear. Paul says, there's something better for you. Live like a son and a daughter. And then he says, to lead you back into fear, but you receive the spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. And with the spirit, we cry, Abba, Papa, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. And But if we are God's children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. I mean, see how Paul's doing this. Okay, watch this. He's saying, because of the Holy Spirit, we are God's children And if children also heirs, and who's an heir along with us? Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. Somehow we can say everything He has, we have. Heirs. God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. And if we really suffer with Him so that we can be glorified with Him. This is the third thing for us to see from this chapter. God made us His children and heirs. God did it. How does that happen? How do people who were enemies of God all of a sudden become beloved sons and daughters? How do people who were outsiders to the promise all of a sudden become fellow heirs with Christ? How does that happen? God has done the impossible, church. God has condemned sin so that we don't have to be condemned. God gave us the spirit of resurrection life so that death won't be the end of the story. And God made us his children and heirs. Everything that is God's is ours. Everything that is God's is ours. Christian theologians have struggled with, how do we say this? Did God sort of impute righteousness? Did God depart? And there's all these different words. Are we adopted? Are we, and there's, there's one, we're struggling to say this with human language, but somehow because we've been united with Christ, we've been made children and heirs, and so everything that's his is also ours. So if he's righteous, you're righteous. If he has peace, you've got peace. If he's the joy, you're the joy. If he's the power that overcomes death, you've got that power living in in you too. Everything that is his is yours. Now I know why some of you are excited and others of you are quiet. It's not just because of your personalities. It's also because you're wondering, 
if that's true, then why doesn't my life feel like it? You're wondering, well, if that's real, then where is that power? Because I sure don't feel it. And that doesn't look like my struggle with sin and my struggle with allowing the Holy Spirit to lead me. I know that. And I have no illusions that saying yes to the power of the Holy Spirit means overnight transformation. I've been in ministry long enough to know that for many of us, as long as it took us to build up a habitual sin, it may take us that long to undo that habitual sin. It may be. And it may be that we never fully surmount the impact, the stain of that before our body is fully glorified. But I want you to change your perspective on the struggle this morning. That we are not condemned sinners on our way to death. We are children of God learning to live by the Spirit on our way to glory. Now think of how you would pray. Amen. Think of how you would pray differently. Think of how you would serve differently. Think of how you would give of your life differently. If you believe that we are just condemned sinners on our way to death, everything you do, you listen, two people could be serving in the nursery at New Life downtown from two very different modes. One could be saying, well, I better serve because I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I was on my way to death, but Jesus just rescued me by a thread. Okay. So the least I could do is change some dirty diapers. And there are many pastors who'd be happy to let you. I don't want you to serve out of that lens. I'd rather you don't serve until this lens changes to this lens. Until you understand that you're not a condemned sinner on your way to death and hell except Jesus just <gasps> barely rescued. I want you to believe in the, in the depths of your being. That you are a child of God learning to live by the spirit of resurrection power. And you, my friends, are on your way to glory. To glory. To glory. Paul says it, glorified. If we suffered, we're also going to be glorified with him. And, and these first followers of Jesus are like, hang on a minute. We heard the story of the glorified Jesus. We, you who saw the resurrection and the ascension, you glimpsed this glory. And Paul's like, it's going to be yours too. If it's his, it's yours. You're on your way to glory. So this leaves us we can't swing on the one side and become all prosperity gospel and say, oh, I, I'm on my way to glory. Sunday's coming. I'm going to get my money and my business and my healing. You're like, no, man, it's better than that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope, we of all people are to be pitied. Keep your bank accounts and your, all your good life, whatever. That ain't even close to glory. On the other hand, we don't live the Eeyore gospel either. We live something more radical and something more beautiful. God has done the impossible. Somehow we are children and heirs learning to live by the Spirit on our way to glory. When I think of this, I think of the example C.S. Lewis used in Mere Christianity. How many of you know what a Pegasus is? We're all about fantastical imaginations today. <laughs> Fantastic beasts, even. Thank you. A few of you. Lewis talked about a Pegasus. A Pegasus is a mythical 
creature. It's a winged horse. And Lewis said, imagine a young Pegasus whose wings hadn't come in yet, little nubs, and a trained, hurtling stallion in the lane next to it. And he said, if you were to watch these two, what if the trained horse just cleared every hurdle and you're like, wow, that's an impressive horse. Never messes up, never makes a mistake, clears all the hurdles. Wow. Maybe I should put my money on that horse, if you were that type. <laughs> and Lewis says, but if you look at this Pegasus with its nubby wings, and it's, what if it's a clumsy, hurtling horse? And the Pegasus tries to clear the first hurdle, and it's like, <clears throat> crash. It's okay, run again. Next hurdle, boom, crash. Run again a little harder, a little faster, <clears throat> crash. And you're looking at this, and you're like, oh my goodness. And Lewis says, this is what we think when we sometimes compare the person who is in Christ and the person who is not in Christ. And we see someone who's been well-trained with good manners and good upbringing and the right morality. And we're like, oh, that, per that person is so impressive. They didn't even need Jesus. They can clear all of the hurdles. And the Christian, oh, look at that Christian. He's a mess. He doesn't have the right social manners. He says he talks too loud in church. He says the wrong things. He, da, 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 da. he still swears. He smells of blah, 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 blah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And Lewis says, but hang on. Because if you wait long enough, one day the Pegasus will fly. And if you wait long enough, there won't be a hurdle it can't clear. Because a Pegasus wasn't born to jump over hurdles. A Pegasus was born to fly. And so those who wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. And I know it feels right now like you can't fly. And I know there are moments where it feels like all I can do is fail and fall again and again. Glenn, are you sure this gospel has power? I just don't feel it. I just... But those who wait upon the Lord will find the renewal of their strength with a resurrection kind of power. You're on your way to glory. You're going to fly. Because God has done the impossible. The thing that you could never do. The thing the law could never do. The thing religion could never do. God, in Christ, has done it. Would you bow your heads this morning?